This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Ellie Hoffman, CEO of Seeking Alpha, one of the largest financial sites today. He joined them to uh, start the market news team. He created their flagship newsletter. In 2010, Ellie was promoted to editor-in-chief and VP of content. In July 2015, Ellie became Seeking Alpha's CEO. I've known Ellie for a few years now, and this is definitely an interview I wanted to have because Ellie doesn't have the Standard background that a lot of think tech people have in this industry, and we'll get into that later on. So, Ellie, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. If not, you know, why don't you film some of the blanks on your background? Hmm. Thanks, Ellie. I guess the blanks are the two areas that I feel have, have, have strongly contributed to my background are outside of the startup industry and outside of the financial services industry, certainly. Professionally, my background is more from a teaching and educational background. So for many years, I was both a teacher and a principal in a a school in Toronto where we lived until 2005, at which point we decided to move our family to Israel. And teaching is a remarkable background, I I believe, to almost anything that you want to do, whether as an entrepreneur or a manager. Even things as simple as classroom management or school management, at the level of the 14-year-old, you get a really raw view into motivation and incentives and how people behave that is super helpful the, the as, you, the, as, as your career progresses into adults and, and yeah. how they function and company politics and those kinds of things. So it's, um, you know, you can ask my management team. It's something that I cite at every management meeting. I'll, I'll share an anecdote of something that happened as a teacher or as a principal. Um, so, so that's something that didn't didn't sort of directly contribute to me eventually becoming CEO of Seeking Alpha, but indirectly has contributed enormously to my background. Um, I'm also a parent of a large family, and, and uh, you know, as a parent of a large family, I think um, it also gives you a, new, a unique perspective of um, family management and, and what that looks like. So we have the, so just, just just so I, I understand when you say large family, we're talking about. Six, eight kids or 10 plus? So we have 15. 15? Yeah, we have 15 kids. <laughs> that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. That's what we could, that's, that's, that's even a, that's an extra large family. So, so, so our, our oldest is, is 29 and she's wow. got five of her own. Our youngest is seven. Okay. And so, so that also gives a unique perspective because, because um, you know, one of the things I said as a teacher before getting into family is that um, to be a successful teacher, I, I used to tell this to my teachers when I was a principal, they, often you do sort of a school trip. Uh, you know, we're going to go do a day activity somewhere. And teacher would say, oh, could I have a day off, right? We've got enough teachers. Maybe, maybe they don't have to go on that trip. And I would absolutely insist that every single teacher go along the trip. And they would be like, why? You don't need this many teachers. What I said to them was, um, 
it's imperative that you get an understanding of your pupils that's outside of the classroom because you get a, a very singular view of them inside the classroom that will be radically different when you see them outside the classroom. So the kid who maybe isn't the traditional textbook mm-hmm. um, studier and he's kind of difficult in the classroom and you struggle with him and then suddenly you take him on a day trip to on a hike and you and you see, wow, he's the leader of the team, and everybody's following him, and it gives you a totally different perspective of who that kid is. And so, you know, likewise, and and, and in a much more magnified way, um, this is a, a blessing that me and my wife Alana have. Having had a, a large family, every kid is their own universe. Um, you you need to manage their budget. Right, each kid, ha- you know, you, you have to understand how you're going to monetarily get them where they need mm-hmm. to get to. You need to manage their um, their their innovation and 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 how they view their career progression, etc. We've got, you know, now five or six kids in the workforce, and so all of that's been very instructive to me as to how to think about integrating different people into the workforce and, and how that applies to. Company management. No, that, that's something I have to think about with my. I, I have four kids, and I, I don't even think about it like that. But it's definitely a, a unique way of uh, and a good way of looking at it. So you know, so you said you, in two thousand and five, you know, you made Aliyah, you moved to Israel, and you were a teacher before. Did, when you, whenever I, I take it, you went to school. You know, you, you got your degree. Did you want to be a teacher? Like, is that the degree you got, or it, like, how did you get started? Um, so, so, you know, in, 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 in my community, there was a concept of Kodel, which was, um, continuing to study, um, the Bible and the Torah in, in post-secondary, uh, institution. And so I did that for a number of years. And, and yes, I very much sort of wanted to take that and translate it into something where I not only studied, but also taught. So I did that for a number of years. Um, an opportunity came my way initially to sort of become the head of a very small but emerging um, organization in Toronto. And so I took that on. It was super interesting to me because at some point you, you want to take your studies and make something out of them, not just you know, become an expert in your field, but how am I going to um, transfer that expertise and imbue that in other people? So started off doing that. Um, Moved, moved into sort of a more formal teacher position and ultimately, ultimately into a principal position in a school. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was very much an aspiration of mine. Throughout that entire period, I was a, a hobbyist investor, somebody who was always fascinated by the um, financial markets. So that was always something that was on my radar screen. But I don't think it, you know, Did- at that time I was yet perceiving that as a potential career opportunity. So, so two things, Samir. Did you have a traditional like education in, in high school I know you went to Colo and you know it's a very you're, you're deep in studies in, in, in the Colo but on the secular side you know like you're saying your finance you know investing how'd you get into that like when did that did you always have that knack or that interest and you just okay you said I'm there but I'm going to do it on my own or did you study up you know somewhere with that so so a little bit of both um I had a fairly traditional high school education, mm-hmm. got my diploma, um, post-secondary went into accounting. That was my father's profession. Mm-hmm. And, and I, for you know a period of time, I felt that was where I was going to go. Um, I did that for a number of years through a university in Canada. But at some point came to recognition, 
I didn't have a passion for accounting. It's, it's a, <laughs> a lot fairly, of people don't. <laughs> right. it, 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 it's, it's a very cut and dry industry, and I didn't feel I could apply mm-hmm. my creativity to that. And so made peace with the fact that I'm not going to have a, a, a future in accounting. Um, I, I guess sort of parallel to that, um, you know, for, from a very young age, very, very fascinated by the concept that you could take money and grow that nest egg by investing in companies which was felt like a, a mutually beneficial relationship in which they got capital um, from you in order to do great things for the world, whether that was a, a drug manufacturer or a technology innovator. And at the same time, you know, looking at that and, and how, how can I make money out of that and what would I do with that money? So that was always a, a, a strong interest of mine. Um, in, you know, even within my, my professional career as a teacher, it was always something that I spent meaningful time on the side in the evenings mm-hmm. or the early mornings studying up on and, and investing my own money. And so um, it was something that I knew I had a passion for, something I was very enthusiastic about. When we, as a family, made the decision to uh, move from Canada to Israel, and that was in 2005, um, I had spent about a decade in education. Um, I loved it. I gained a ton from it. At the same time, I didn't feel I could continue to do that. It's a very exhausting profession. I felt that I'd given it what I could and that, that if I were to continue, to continue to do it, it would probably be sort of diminishing returns for me from a creativity perspective. And so I came to Israel with the thought that I want to figure out where my niche would be in investing, because that's really, I felt, where my next career progression was. I spent about a year um, basically managing my, my family's account. Um, I found that very stressful because um, producing sort of, you know, yearly revenue from mm-hmm. your account rather than investing for the, for the long-term future was not something that I found pleasurable. And, and to be candid, I don't think I was particularly good at. Um, and so within about 12 months of, of moving here, I said, this is something I would like to continue to do as an investment vehicle, but not as, uh, as my profession. And, and so started to look around at what were the um, financial opportunities or the investment opportunities in Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, thankfully, Seeking Alpha was in its infancy then, came across Seeking Alpha very quickly, met at the time with the senior management. The whole company was about eight people <laughs> and joined the company. And, uh, and that's where I started my journey with Seeking Alpha. Got it. That's, that's, that's a great story. So we're going to go back a bit and then I'll just one question before we go into the Seeking Alpha aspect to it. So this is something I, I like to ask um, a, a lot of the people I interview with is, is there anything that you failed at early on that really bothered you and, and, and had you overcome it? So, so specific to Seeking Alpha? No, no, before Seeking Alpha. Before, before joining Yeah, and like, you know, throughout the time, whether it was as a principal, a teacher, right. uh, an accountant, you know, something that, you know, in, in your career early on that you said, okay, you know what, this is a problem, I need to fix it. Yes. You know, how'd you go about doing that? If there was a problem, some people just, you know, have a rosy career and yeah. it's all good. No, I, well, it's, uh, certainly that, that, that wouldn't be the case with me. Um, so, so I can think of a couple of things. I mean, I, I mean, the first thing I, w- I would say to that, and this sort of led me to ultimately pursue a career outside of teaching and education. Um, for the last couple of years that I was in education, I recognized that I was incapable of giving it all of my energy because I had become burnt out. Um, 
And, and, and I think there's many people in their professions who either know that but choose not to confront it or, or maybe or maybe are not fully aware of that. Um, and so that was an important recognition for me. I got to the point where I felt I'm actually not doing the optimal job as an educator at this point. Um, so it's not just about my lifestyle or what, what's in it for me. I no longer have the you know, in my case, the patience or the energy to give to that what it was. And so I think that was a very important failure uh, where I said, this is something I was very passionate about for about eight years. And I'm not passionate about it anymore. I need to recognize that. And it, it, not recognizing it would be a, would, would, would carry downside for the people who are on the receiving end of whatever I do there. Um, and so that was, a, that was a failure that I think taught me a lot. And I haven't experienced that subsequently in my career, but I think I could. Um, and, and everybody needs to sort of recognize, or this is my opinion, do, are you at a point in your career where you're just not in it anymore? You're sort of mailing it in because it's comfortable, because it's what you've done for so many years, and, and you're risk averse to making that change. Uh, yeah, well, I think a lot of people, if you ask them, and that's one of the bigger challenges out there is, you know, taking first the, the reflection and, you know, the introspection of oneself and then, of course, saying, well, I'm not, I'm not really happy here, but it's a safety net, right? Yes. It's, it's comfortable. I don't want to push myself. I don't want to push the boundaries, especially if they have a family and then they have to, sure. you know, take care of them. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing to do at all. Um, no, so, so now we're going to move into seeking alpha part, right? So 2005, you came, I think 2006, you probably started working with them. Correct. So how do you describe it, right, from then to now, right? And so the audience, Seeking Alpha, again, like I said, is one of the bigger financial news sites out there. But it's a lot more than just a news site. It's not, it's a community as well. So just give us a little bit of a, you know. Yeah, sure. So, so before getting, this is my, my progression there. Um, Seeking Alpha is, I think, the world's largest investor community. And we've always, always been very community focused. Um, the idea behind Seeking Alpha was that there's an enormous amount of research that's published for investors. But at the time that we that David found David Jackson, who founded Seeking Alpha, founded the company, there's very little of that research that was coming from investors. Most of it was coming from paid analysts. And he felt that what was missing was the investor voice. Where's the investor? There are hundreds of thousands of people that are doing research that are ultimately uh, translating that research into profitable, profitable portfolio strategies, um, and yet they're nowhere to be heard. Everybody's only hearing the opinions of paid analysts, and surely those people um, want to be heard and, and have a lot to say about how they're thinking about investing, which stocks they're buying, how they're thinking about portfolio, portfolio balancing, etc. And so Seeking Alpha was founded on the principle, um, you know, I like to call it for investors by investors, which it sounds super obvious and straightforward, and yet was a revolutionary concept at the time because there, that didn't really exist. There was this notion of, no, somebody who owns a stock should not be expressing his opinion about a stock because he's clearly biased. And we should only be listening to objective voices who have no position. And we felt the opposite, that in fact, the people who had quote unquote skin in the game, um, they were investing in the stock. They need to be listened to. They need to be part of that discussion. And arguably, they had done stronger due diligence on their investments than the people who were paid guns, so to speak. They, mm -hmm. they, they, they're paid to produce the research, but 
at the end of the day, they go to sleep, whether whether their research is correct or incorrect. There's no scanning. And so, number one, get the voices of those investors. Number two, get the voices of the millions of investors who follow those stocks to somehow also participate in that discussion. So they might not necessarily publish their full thesis, but they might be active participants in a discussion around the thesis. And so, you know, tactically what that means is we have more than 10,000 contributors who write their, who contribute their full theses on stocks on Seeking Alpha, and then a much larger community of what we call commenters who then weigh in to the discussion and say, you know, I've been following the stock for a decade. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, the senior management of this company, et cetera. And here's, here's my sentiment about the stock, and here's what you need to know about this investment opportunity. And so the, the idea was, let's aggregate all of the people who really know about the stock from an investor's perspective, get their voice, create the distribution to put that in people's inboxes, on their mobile devices, etc., so that discussion can ensue and the community can build around those investment opportunities. Got it. And so, you know, what was your impression when you came? Right, you had eight people here. Did you think it was like, okay, it's a job. I don't know if they were to succeed. You know, it's it's a really lofty goal. Like again, was it was a disruptor at the time? Like you're saying, was no one really did this by the community, right? How do you verify? How do you qualify? Everything was done by the big corporations or the investment banks, the boutique banks. Were you like, what was your thought process when you when you came here? So, so that's a great question. Um, I was, I was very captivated by the vision, um, and, and I loved the idea of working with these individual investors to get their voice out there to other investors. Um, I was much less confident in how you monetize this and create this, you know, to, to drive this over the business. And that's where I think, you know, David and, and our initial seed investors were visionaries far beyond what, what I was able to contribute in that they saw the discussion from a viable business, not just a fun <laughs> hobby. So, yeah. so I, I, I loved the concept. I loved the community, um, saw the engagement, but to me it was completely unclear how one takes that and turns it into a business. And I think, you know, David and our investors had a much stronger sense of, yeah, not only is this um, something that will engage users and, and, and create a very large investor community around it, but there's real opportunities to turn this into a business that can be beneficial both to investors inside the company and investors in the stock market. And, and so when you came here, you were on the content side. Correct. And, and I was, yeah, I, you know, I, I've been, I was on the content side for close to a decade. Mm-hmm. That's remains sort of my key area of passion. I'm a content person. Even before joining Seeking Alpha, I used to write a weekly newsletter, nothing related to investing, but related to um, the Bible studies. Um, and, and so I've always been very much a content person. That was what captivated me. And to, you know, to some extent, even as CEO, that's been an area of focus beyond running a company where I continue to view one of my key contributions and where I just, uh, you know, I'm passionate about. Got it. So, you know, I want to talk a second about, you know, coming here with your background, right? And so the tech community now more than ever is seeing a lot more people from the, I would say the Haredi community, right? And for my listeners, that's more the ultra-Orthodox community, like uh, the Hasidim in New York, where a lot of my audience is from. 
you know, in Israel, there's a very big emphasis trying to get them involved, right? Again, you, with your background being a little bit more diverse, you know, were people receptive? Were they nervous? Did they, like this? Did they? They just didn't know, you know, or was it just? It didn't make a difference. It just I came in, I did my work, and it just you know it was great. So I remember when I first interviewed from my position at Seeking Alpha before. Um, when I was exchanging emails with the person <laughs> who was going to be interviewing me, and I, and, and I was nervous about this question yeah. because I had come from North America, and it was like kind of, I don't know how you're going to think about me. Yeah. I'm a Haredi. I dress differently. I look differently than the average guy. And so the, the person who was interviewing, interviewing me, who, who is still a very close and dear friend, I'm not sure if you know him, his name is Nick, Mick Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of said to him, I want you to know I'm Haredi. Uh, I hope you're okay with that. And he said... Complete non-issue. I don't, you know, yeah. we're equal, <laughs> equal opportunity employer. It makes no difference to me whatsoever. Um, you know, and basically hired me on the spot. Um, so, so I was nervous about it. Um, I'd say two things. You know, first of all, the bottom line is in the 13 plus years that I've been seeking Alpha, I can't think of any instances in which that's in any way been an issue. Um, so to your, to your question, it's been a complete non-issue, um, n- not only in Israel, but in North America as well. It's all about who, Performance. You, who you are and, and, and what you do as a business. People are, at, you know, to, to the greatest extent that I can understand it, they, they don't stand ceremony on how you dress or what your religious views are, as long as you don't try and impose them on them. The the second thing I would say is, I don't know to what extent that's due to the fact that I'm, I I would say, hyper um, aware of the possibility that people feel uncomfortable. So one of the things, you know, I discussed with my wife when, when I joined the company at your line is, for me to be successful, I need to break barriers. That's how I felt. I, I don't know, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know ultimately how the person on the other end, the receiving end feels. But for me, it was very important that, that nobody feel that's a barrier. So whether that means having a management team around me that is, uh, is equal opportunity, male, female, um, Jew, non-Jew, mm-hmm. straight or non-straight, mm-hmm. etc. None of that's ever been an issue. And I've been very explicit about that the whole time. And so perhaps that's contributed to the fact that people have never felt that's been a barrier. I don't know. But the bottom line is I've yet to gone to go to a single meeting in Israel or in New York or in the West Coast, mm-hmm. etc., where that's ever been an issue, where people, where my perception has ever been, people felt, hmm, I don't know how to deal with an ultra-Orthodox CEO or an ultra-Orthodox VP content that's out of my... <laughs> Out of my realm of understanding. So, so one question, which is, uh, uh, you know, to just move away from seeking out for a second. Do you feel in your community that people look to you as saying, well, or, or do you feel a responsibility, not necessarily to lead, but to, to well, lead by example, I would say. Like, do you feel that, that pressure or that if it is pressure, um, do you feel that eyes are on you and, you know, or you just... No, I am who I am, and I don't really feel that, but if people want to take that out of it, then great. I'd say more of the latter than the former. Okay. I, 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 I underweight my ability to influence people's opinion. Um, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, to give an example, I was on the bus on the way home last night and sat down next to a young 
a young adult, he was probably about 18, and he was kind of looking over my shoulder for, you know, 10 minutes, mm-hmm. and it sort of struck up a conversation with me, and he said, you know, it's, I'm quite surprised. Um, I'm not used to seeing somebody who's ultra-Orthodox, but at the same time, you know, is touch-typing on a MacBook and, and <laughs> corresponding, yeah. and he, I don't know exactly what you do, but it seems really cool. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you for the compliment. Um, and, you know, it sort of described him what I do. And he was like, wow, that, that's really cool. Breaking stereotypes. Um, yeah, it, that's really cool. You know, uh, my, I come from sort of a, a fairly orthodox family. I would not have expected to see this. You've now changed my perception of, of the sort of the, the ultra-orthodox, the fact that they can integrate themselves into the workforce, etc. And so I don't view myself as a visionary or as somebody that's necessarily propelling that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it makes me very happy if people sometimes take that away. <laughs> I, I hear that. So now we'll get back. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, since you've been in Seeking Alpha for such a long time, how has the culture changed from the time when you started and now as a CEO? You know, how do you feel that the culture that you started with and the culture that you have to emanate, right? Because, again, everything it's, it disseminates from you. It goes down, the trickle effect in a sense. So, you know, it's also interesting that David's still here, right? It's not usually when you bring in a new CEO, the old CEO just tends to move on, yes. right? But David is still involved in the company on it. And, you know, so what is, did you see that when you became CEO that all of a sudden you wanted to shift the dynamics a bit to make it a little bit, you know, more, you know, shape it in your style? So, so definitely, yes. I mean, you, you can't lead from the front unless you, you, you take an opinion on things. And every human being is going to be different about how one leads. Um, so, you know, first of all, just factually, David, David, did, David, our founder, did leave the company for two years and then okay. subsequently came back. And so there was an extended period of time in which he, he wasn't inside the company. But even subsequently, um, we work extremely closely together. It, at times, I describe ourselves as co-CEOs because um, he's, you know, he's the founder and he's got the vision, which mm-hmm. I really respect, about um, what Seeking Alpha is and, and therefore where its potential is. At the same time, I think it's important for um, the team and for employees to have a single source of culture and a single source of vision as to who, what we stand for, etc. And so I, I, take that, um, I, I take that seriously. Um, it's something that is challenging. I think uh, I wouldn't be the, the only um, CEO to say that the building culture is not simplistic. It's not a uh, bulleted list of, you know, these mm-hmm. things we stand for. Um, getting people to, to feel enthusiastic about what they do, um, getting them to feel that they're a part of something that they really believe in is, is challenging, but at the same time, very rewarding. And so it's something that I try to invest in regularly. Um, and, and yeah, to, to your question, I think it's it shifted somewhat over time, um, never to the point where David and I felt misaligned about it, but we're each going to have our own way of articulating it. Mm-hmm. We're each going to have our own way of, of executing on that vision and where that takes us as a company. And so, yeah, I think that has changed with, with my leadership in the company. Um, I w- you know, because I, I, I need to be able to, to articulate that in a way that feels organic to, to me, as opposed to trying to assert somebody else's agenda. Got it. And, you know, so 
In terms of, you know, just a little bit about this is the revenue model, right? So you, I know we spoke about it a little bit before you touched upon it. Um, but what is the, the revenue model now? Is, is it subscription-based? Um, you know, is it research-based? You know, how, how does, you know, how does, you know, how, how do you guys make money in a sense? So, so I'll, I'll start sort of, you know, from the, the big picture facts. Right now we're about one-third subscription, two-third ad sales. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that number is shifting. So, so you know, the the subscription part of our revenue is is, is growing relative to the ad sales part of our revenue, um, and and that's something that makes me proud. It's not to say that our ad revenue is shrinking. In fact, we have aspirations to grow the ad revenue. I'm really proud of the subscription revenue part, um, and I, I feel it's it's closely aligned with delivering value to our users because when users say I'm happy to pay you for what you give me Mm -hmm. that gives you a mandate to deliver them superior experiences whereas if you're trying to pay your bills only by selling your users eyeballs to advertisers it's less clear where that alignment is and so having made that shift I think is very important for seeking alpha there's obviously a broader macro environment a lot of People speak about the fact that you know Facebook and Google are eating the, the lion's share mm-hmm. of, of ad revenue. I think that's correct. I think with niche publishers, it's slightly less correct. And Seekamp is a niche publisher. We cater to a very specific audience, high net worth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very intent, intentional investors. Um, but at the same time, um, I think there is truth to, to the broader narrative, and therefore we've intentionally made that shift um, to, to move more of our focus. And therefore, our um, growth creativity into what do we have that's unique to Seeking Alpha that's very valuable to investors that they would pay us for. And so, you know, that will that has grown over the past couple of years. It's now a third. I anticipate within the next two years, it'll be 50 percent of our mm-hmm. overall revenue. Got it. And so what were some of the challenges that you saw when you came in as a CEO? What was like, you know, well, the biggest challenge was we were, we were burning money. You were burning money. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so that, so you came in at a time where, you know, and so what did you, so what was your solution, right? Um, this is, this is, a, this is, yeah. the, anytime you're burning money and again, depending how long you've been in business, it's not a good thing. No. <laughs> I mean, no. you know. So, so we, were, we were burning money at the time. So, so my solution was pretty simple. We have to stop burning money. We have, we have the foundation to be a profitable business, and we should hold ourselves to run the business profitably in order to be able to fund our own growth. And so both put the company's focus on ensuring that we are profitable rather than burning money and brought in the management team to facilitate that. I thought that was the number one priority for the company. Um, we, I did not relish the thought of, of, of raising money. We hadn't raised money. I came in, two, in 2015. We hadn't raised money since 2009. I was not enthusiastic about trying to raise money in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, what are we going to do? And how we can focus our resources, you know, today it's beginning of 2016, I put us on a path that by the beginning of 2018, we would be profitable and therefore be able to find our own growth. And it was, it was tough. Um, but that was the biggest challenge I faced. Did, did you, did you, when you came in and you were burning money, did you, a lot of people, they tend to just, okay, let's let, because salaries are by far the, you know, the most, most expensive part to running a business. Did you have to lay off people or did you say, okay, we're just going to, you know, weather the storm. We're going to, you know, 
tighten our budget a bit more and keep everybody on and, you know, like, and have the plan in place where, like you said, 2018, we, we start running in the black. It, it was two-pronged. Um, we, 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 in in two th- early 2016, we cut some people. Um, there were different opinions, particularly among our investors, as to how aggressively you should do that. My opinion was we have to find the sweet spot. Um, because if you cut too aggressively, then you also cut your revenue-generating potential. Um, and so, yes, you can manage that cost base, but you'll, you'll just shrink then the top line in order to get there. And so I, I felt we had to come up with a solution that, that, that was a, a sort of what I would call a modest um, cost reduction, enough to ensure that we had the resources in place to build a profitable business, but at the same time didn't mean we were, you know, we were sort of overspending. Mm-hmm. And it's risky. Right, because you could get that wrong, and, and not everybody necessarily on, from our investors agreed to the approach that I took. Thankfully, it did play out in exactly the way I anticipated, which is that we made some cuts. We also we also invested in some areas because I felt, um, for example, that we at the time had not spent enough time um, monetizing our mobile app, which is to provide a small example, mm-hmm. and so. Um, what are we going to do to invest to, to monetize our mobile app? What are we going to do to make more money out of programmatic advertising? Those are short-term levers to turn the corner for us on profitability. Um, and you know, by 2018, beginning of 2018, we were very profitable. We were putting cash in our books. And you know, I set a sort of target. We're not going to start spending on growth until we hit a specific cash balance on our books, after which we can start investing in growth. We hit the target ahead of the date, um, and it was very liberating because it meant you had you owned your own future. You were able to um, you were able to take the capital that your company was then generating, and without having to sell that to anybody, start to invest in growth areas. Got it. And so, you know, a, a few things with that. And I'm going to get into the growth in a second, but I'm glad you touched upon that. When you became CEO, did the people look at you? Did they say, wow, you know, they, they hire within and, you know, this is fantastic? Or were people, like, skeptic? Um, you know, did you feel that you were even ready to, like, you know, take the take the reins? I mean, you know, it's not a you – know, you were here for 10 years or so and, you know, you, you get that. And, it, listen, I'm always a believer. I love, I love when companies hire within um, because it shows everybody else that there's opportunity growth. And the loyalty factor stays. They don't have to necessarily leave – Etc. Did you feel there was a shift, or did, it was just smooth sailing in that sense? Um, I did. I felt prepared for it, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I was not. I, I, I mean, it was very overconfident um, about my abilities. Um, you, I can't speak to what people thought because yeah. that that you have to ask them. Um, what I can say is, over the first six months, three people who I didn't anticipate leaving the company did, mm-hmm. right? And so clearly there's a sense of whatever that means, there's been a change in leadership. I'm no, I'm no longer sure that I want to be here. Maybe it's less other, left otherwise, but let's assume they wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think I haven't yet to see a change of senior management either at the CEO level or at the sub-CEO level of a, of a, of a significant team leader in which there aren't surprises. And there were surprises. I was surprised by it. There were people who I thought were sort of, you know, really on board with how I was, I was moving this forward, who within six months of me becoming CEO left. Um, I, I tried to be 
at, at the same time welcoming of everybody, at the same time also um, fairly decisive about either you're in or you're out. So, so, you know, there was a specific discussion, I recall, where there was somebody who, a couple of months after me becoming CEO, I felt that he was kind of nailing it in. And I said to him, listen, I, I need to know if you're, you're on board with where we're going or not. I'm okay with either. I'm not going to coerce you. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, and if you're one foot out the door, then I need you to be both feet out the door because I need people who are truly committed to what we're doing. And he said, give me a couple of days to think about it. And he came back after a couple of days and I, I have to tell you, um, you're right. Um, I've kind of been mailing it in and I, I'm not fully on board. Um, I feel, you know, I've been with the company for six years or whatever it was at the time. Um, not ready for a change in leadership. It just means me going through a transition in my career about how we think about things. And so I said, okay, great. Um, let's agree to a time period of which you transition out of the company. I'm going to hire somebody to replace you. And it was amicable. Um, but that's a tough conversation. Anyway. It, w- it was a tough conversation, but uh, but I just really have very little tolerance for somebody who's not all in. No, agreed. I mean, you know, it's definitely, listen, transparency is great. But it's, you know, I, it's never easy to have that conversation. So with that, though, right? So now you, you said you had 175 people throughout all the offices. How many offices are there? We've, we have um, four locales with three offices. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have an Israel office. Total headcount Israel is about 75. Most of them work out of the Israel office. Mm-hmm. We have a U.S. office with a headcount of about 25 but about another 25 people who work in the U.S. who don't work from the office. Mm-hmm. We have a Kiev-based office of about 20, and we have the India team who none of them work out an office of about 50 people. Okay. And so India, Kiev, U.S., Israel. So, and how, so how do you manage that? that is, uh, that's a feat. Um, I, I take very little credit for that. We, we have great people who, who manage those sites, I agree with you. It's, it's no small feat. And I think a lot of companies have tried that and failed. And, and many companies over the years have reached out to us and say, help us here. We're trying to build a team in India, but we keep failing. We're trying to build a team in, in, in Ukraine, but we're, we're not managing to do that. Um, it's something that's been in our DNA almost from day one, remote management. So you know, one of our core competencies. At the same time, I'm not delusional. Um, it's, it's challenging to have that many different time zones, mm-hmm. that many different geograph- geographical zones. And it's something that we spend and invest a lot of time in making sure that it doesn't ultimately hamstring the company. Got it. And so when, you know, when you hire management, because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming when you hire management, you're involved as opposed to some of the you know, early on people, you're not as involved. What do you look for? I mean, are there certain attributes, certain traits that you look for when you hire people? Um, you know, that's something I, I just generally, I'm always curious to know. I think a company needs to recognize its DNA and hire accordingly. And, and I don't think there's a recipe for that. Um, so, so what does that mean, you know, specific seeking alpha? Um, I'd say, you know, areas where that asserts itself when we're thinking about hiring senior managers um, number one, it's very important that we enjoy working with each other. Um, we try and have a good time. Um, we, we work long hours and probably many of us could be considered workaholics, but at the same time, we really enjoy um, 
spending time in each other's company, this is this is where you can spend many of your waking hours. So we look for some somebody who's culturally aligned with that. Um, the, the second area that I would say is um, precision, and I, I'm not sure that's that's true with with, with all companies. Um, we're we're not for better or for worse a sort of shoot from the hips company. We spend a lot of time with org charts and with figuring out okay. How is this going to work? Well, what are the correct KPIs? We'll debate the KPIs for a specific initiative, et cetera. And so um, if you're the kind of person who sort of works intuitively and you, you've got an amazing track record of doing that, I still need to be aware of the fact that might not work with us because we tend to be sort of, okay, how would you think about this from a metrics perspective? Mm-hmm. And, and how would you, what, what's the right org chart for that? What's the right team for that? So that's something that... Um, at the senior management level, I'm very aware of. And then there's just the, you know, the, the, the sort of um, collaborative chemistry. Um, for, in order for a company to function effectively, if the senior management team is not um, collaboratively uh, managing to get on the same page, then it's going to be a handicap. And, and the last thing I want as CEO is to be the referee between strong-minded personalities. So I, I love strong-minded people. In fact, I look for strong-minded people, but I look for strong-minded people who I can say to them, hey, you're strong-minded and you're strong-minded. Go in your room, figure out a, you know, figure out what you want to hear. Come to me with a proposal that you both agree to as to how you're going to mutually achieve this thing. Mm. Um, so you need to be able to collaborate and to knock into the politics of sort of, you know, this is what I say and this is what he says. And then for Ellie, now you make the call because <laughs> I, I think I'm the worst person to make that call. And then it becomes a very top-heavy company where, where you sort of do a lot of um, disagree and commit, right? That yeah. I say this and I say this, and then the CEO has to sort of sit, referee that, umpire that, and be the judge. I don't want to have that job. I don't think I'll be good at that job. I would much rather ratify a collaborative solution between two people who might have had different opinions, but have come to a collective agreement about how to move forward than to make a call between two people who said, we can't get to agreement on this. You make the call. No, I hear that. And it's, again, that's not always an easy thing to do either. All right, so moving on a second, because we have a few minutes left. Sure. Did you have a mentor, you know, throughout this process? Well, first of all, I, you know, I have to give huge credit to David Jackson, our founder. I, I worked under him for many years. He's been a huge mentor for me. He's been, uh, he's an incredible business thinker um, and, and definitely has very seriously influenced almost every aspect of how I think about things. Um, our investor board are, are deeply involved in Seeking Alpha mm-hmm. um, and, and so have been mentors to me. But then there have been you know, friends who I met, meet with regularly, some of whom have worked for Seeking Alpha, some of whom not, but, but have senior positions in other companies. Um, that, that, you, know, you, you sometimes need an outside voice, somebody who um, thinks about things differently, sounding board, diversity of opinions. Um, so, so not one specific person. I would say this is my this is my mentor, yeah. and anytime I have a challenge, I look to them. But definitely, I think to try and um, go it alone on everything is very challenging. And so, the, one of the things I also like to ask is, what did you want to be when you were fifteen? Right? When, when you were fifteen, did you know was Colo the path that you wanted? Did you want to be an accountant? Did you want to be a musician, ball player? Like, did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you were fifteen? Um, well, so first of all, you know, I wasn't even 
Orthodox and I was 15, so I certainly did not okay. want to be in Kolo. Um, I wanted to, I want to run businesses. Um, that, that was always something, entrepreneurship and investing was something that was, I don't know, it was in my, my DNA. Um, so I have the incredible fortune of, of finding myself in exactly that position. Well, that, that is pretty, that's pretty fortunate. And, and lastly, um, is there a habit that you do on a daily basis that keeps you focused, that keeps you on top of your game? Um, yes, there, I would say, you know, two habits that I, I don't know the way that I could qualify them as keeping on top of my game, but they're very important to me. Um, I try to physically exercise every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sound body, sound, sound body, sound mind. Um, I, I feel great if I, if I sort of, uh, feel good about my, my physical well-being. Um, the second habit is I work long hours. But I always try and have family time every day, even at the expense of sleep. So I know, you know some people may disagree with that, and, and, and I, I think there's a very strong case to me that sleep is even more important. Um, but if I have to make the choice, um, having time outside of work with family, it's clarifying, it's something that, that sort of brings you into work the next day with a new vision of how you're thinking about things. Um, and, and I find that, that it's not only sort of... Um, a, a an opportunity to, to, to step back a little bit. It's also an opportunity to um, think about things differently. Got that. And so um, with that, the last question I, I want to focus on is, you know, on the productivity side, you know, what do you suggest to founders to be more productive, right? What do you, what do you think is, you know, again, given, you, you know, where you started, where you are now, and, and you're managing 175 people. You know, is there something that, you know, for founders or CEOs that are, are starting up and building companies, is there something that you recommend for them to be a little bit more productive in what they do? Yes. So, so I'll, I'll say two things. One, one is very run-of-the-mill and one less so. The, the run-of-the-mill thing I'll say is that um, you need to understand that your time is is multiplied when you're thinking about how to run the company more effectively that can be trickled down to all the people reporting into you and, you know, and, and further down that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're trying to figure out one little thing on your own, that doesn't have that same trickle down effect. And so recognize that um, there's a, there's a leverage to figuring out things at a team level that simply doesn't exist in the individual level. That's, I think that's that, that's straightforward and something that most people understand. The second thing I'd say, slightly less straightforward, is that um, you need to allow yourself time outside of your day job to not, I'm not talking about you know taking walks in the park, but for example, for me, what it means is take time every week to consume your product. Um, take time every week to look at what other people are doing in the industry, to, to read up, to... Um, to consume competitor products, etc. Because if you don't, you'll become very, um, very sort of razor focused on what you're doing, and you'll optimize around that, but you'll miss the bigger picture. Got it. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. It was really a, a pleasure speaking with you. Ellie, it was an honor. And, and um, so for, the, my, you know, for all the listeners that are out there, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. Um, and feel free to spread the word. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and Spotify and iHeartRadio and everything else. Of course, tell your friends about it. Thank you so much. And we'll see you at the next episode. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.